One great man in history said that those who do not learn from the past are destined or doomed to repeat it. And today we're studying the scriptures in Micah chapter 7 in the hopes that you and I can learn from the past and do our best to not repeat all of the things that took place. We're living in a time that looks near parallel to the times of the messenger named Micah. And so today we're taking a look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Six verses today, verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Verse number one, woe is me for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which my soul desires. The Holy One has perished from the land and there's no upright person among them. And all of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net concerning evil. Both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a payment And a great man speaks the craving of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you host your watchmen, your punishment will come. At that time, their panic will happen. Do not believe in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a close companion. For from her who lies in your bosom, guard the openings of your mouth. For son treats father as a wicked fool. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Uh, Without argument, these are bad times that the messenger is speaking to in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I took some notes on each one of these verses, and we're studying the scripture, going line by line, verse by verse, and we're seeing the principles for our application and understanding exactly what's happening during the time of the messenger named Micah. In verse number 1, we're seeing some personal woe. Uh, The verse opens with, woe is me. This is the messenger speaking under the inspiration of God, but on behalf of his own unique person, uh, like David does in the Psalms. He is feeling with great personal identification the depth of the depravity of the culture and the country in which he lives. So Israel is lacking something. That's why there's such great woe. What is Israel lacking? The messenger says, I'm like fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers, but there's not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which my soul desires. So Israel is lacking. Israel's lacking in good, in godly men. Um, as a fruit picker that goes out searching for something and comes back with nothing, as a harvester who wants that first ripe fig, you know, the fruit of your labor, the harvest, the reward. So the messenger is scouring the land of Israel and finding nothing. Israel is barren in godliness. Of course, we know this is an extreme picture to paint a very real reality for the nation of Israel and the country of uh, Judah here, uh, godliness has withered from the land and there is a, a dearth of good men on the earth. Micah is a harvester, but the fields leave nothing to be harvested. 
he continues on in his message and he says in verse two that the Holy One has perished from the land. There's no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Um, So we know that the grape and the early fig are pictures here of righteousness and godliness in men where uh, men should be uh, loving and where men should be godly and where men should be holy and should be honorable, what these men are doing is they're lying in wait for bloodshed. He says that each of them hunts the other with the net. What ought countrymen to do for one another? They ought to protect one another. What should family members provide for each other but safety? But the messenger here is pointing out the fact that everyone is looking out for his own good rather than the good of other people, and they're doing everything they can to destroy the lives of everyone that's around them. Somebody say, it's a bad day in Israel. Verse number three, concerning evil, watch this, both hands do it well. It's not like one group of people is really bad and the other is uh, only semi-bad. It's not like they're really bad at just one particular thing, but they're pretty good in other areas. The prophet here paints a picture of uh, ambidextrous in evil. Both hands do evil. They do it unified. They do it well. Um, This could also imply here, often in the writings of these minor prophets and major prophets, uh, there's a picture of the arm of justice. And the messenger here, Micah, could be pointing a picture of the arm of justice is no longer doing justice, but the evil hand and the hand that should be good are both doing evil and justice has ceased. Um, Everyone's doing it. In fact, verse number three shows us that the prince and the judge are asking for bribes. The royalty, the rich, and the rulers of the people have conspired together, and I love the picture here, so they weave it together. A great man speaks the craving of his soul. Uh, There's no restraint in the tongue. Even the greatest of men are speaking of the most depraved things that their inward self, their flesh is desiring. And so the great man has spoken what he wants. The prince has named his price. The judge has asked for a bribe. And so the rich and the royal and the rulers weave their plan uh, together as a net to catch the innocent bystander by surprise as their prey. It's a conspiracy but they weave their plans together, maybe even like a tapestry, to make them look like they're good, to make them look like they're okay. This is the normal here. It's not a doing it in darkness anymore. We've seen the picture in Micah's uh, prophecy here uh, that this is being done in the light. When the sun rises, it's a public weaving of evil plans. And uh, verse number four continues on. The best of them. I mean, we're looking at the nation of Israel and show us the best people. The best of them is like a briar. The best of them. Look at this. Uh, The most upright like a thorn hedge. And the day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Even the seemingly righteous are worse than briars, he says. Even those who look good on the outside that you would expect to be upright and just and godly and pure are like briars and they're like thorns. Have you ever 
Have you ever unknowingly walked into a, a spider web or maybe you unknowingly walked through a field that had all kinds of briars and thorns and you left with those little prickly things on your clothes and you've got the, the, you know, the, the thorny vine things. I don't even know what all that's called. That's all attached to you. And there's no way to escape without getting caught in it and getting it all over you. It's painful to walk through. It's painful to pull off of yourself. Uh, That's what's happening in Israel. Everywhere you go, everywhere you walk, there is no safe place. You're getting caught even in the company of those that you think would be good and upright. They're nothing but briars and thorn hedges And that's what's happening. So the prophet says, on the day when you post your watchmen, look at this, on the day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. So the day of the watchmen, that's the day that the prophets have foretold. So here Micah is switching to the third person as he often does in his own style of communicating and speaking. And he's saying uh, confusion is going to precede your ultimate deliverance here. Punishment is going to come on the people. The day when you post your watchman to look out for the coming judgment, just know this, it's coming. The day when you think that you're protected, the day when you wake up to the fact that something could happen and you're going to uh, try and observe where it's going to come from in an attempt to stop it or to avoid it or to divert it, uh, you're not going to be able to is the message of Micah. You have sinned against God. You are sinning against God. And there's no avoiding the consequences of how you have blasphemed God. So the day when you post your watchmen, the day that all these prophets have been predicting, the day that God has been trying to warn you of, here's what the message says, your punishment will come. Look at this. At that time, their panic will happen. What's happening here? Verse number five, um, the panic is taking place. The punishment is coming. And it's coming because the prophet switches back into his uh, first person. Let's talk about this. He says, do not believe in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a close companion. Selfishness reigns everywhere. Everyone's looking out for his own interest. He's saying, don't trust your friends. And he's also communicating, you can't trust them. Don't trust neighbors. Don't trust friends. He goes so far as to say the depravity has run so rampant in the nation that you can't even trust your wife. He says, guard the openings of your mouth against or from her who lies in your bosom. The the one that you should be able to say anything to, the one who is closest to you, you better watch what you say to even her, to even him, because they're looking to take you down. Daughter rises up against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. You know, these are the exact things that Jesus speaks of. I think of Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read you verse number 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, Verse number 35. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. 
Verse 37, what's Jesus speaking of? He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is even referencing this prophecy here and applying it now as the fulfillment and as the one of whom the prophecy has been speaking leading up to this point. The application for these verses, though. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. What do we do when that's exactly what our world looks like? What do we do when that's exactly what we feel like? What do we do when we look around and we're seeing all the same problems that Micah was seeing thousands of years ago? Uh, We don't want to repeat history. We don't want God's judgment, so our goal, our job as believers is to do everything we can to be light and to be salt. It's who we are. And so we want to infiltrate the darkness and we want to penetrate the wounds and cover them in salt and preserve godliness and be a force for righteousness in the world. So uh, we don't want to repeat history. But today there appears to be a dearth of godly men on the earth as well. And Here's what happens when godly people become few. Uh, We see that there's no spiritual fellowship. When godly people become few, there's no spiritual fellowship. Uh, There is nothing spiritual in the community to draw people to itself. There's no spiritual family. There's no spiritual future. There's no spiritual foundation. There's no spiritual favor. What I'm getting at is when godly people become few in a community, it's more than just a demographic shift. There is a spiritual shift in that community. And godliness leaving the equation has never, ever been a good thing. I think to Abraham uh, going to rescue Lot, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, "But, but what if there's... What if there's 50 good men? What if there's 25? What if there's 10? What if there's five and no godly people to be found within the borders of that city? And ultimately, God's promise and God's principles ring true every time destruction comes upon a nation, upon a city, upon a community where godliness has vanished and where selfishness is on the rise. Where godly men become few, there's no spiritual fellowship, there's no spiritual family, no future, no foundation, and absolutely no favor. What there is, is a great spiritual famine. The greatest famine that a nation could ever face is not a famine from lack of rain. It's not a famine of food. It's not a famine of industry. The greatest famine that a nation, that a state, that a county, city, or church could ever face would be a famine of spirituality. And because the messenger Micah points to that reality, that this is a spiritual famine, what's end result is destruction, Uh, we need to understand that the greatest form of patriotism is evangelism. The greatest thing you could ever do for your state, the greatest thing you could ever do for your country, the greatest form of patriotism is evangelism. Because where godly people become many, there is spiritual favor. There is a spiritual foundation. There will be a spiritual future and a spiritual family, a spiritual fellowship, spiritual friendships. 
where spiritual people become many, God's spirit shows up and shows out in miraculous ways. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There is liberty. Here it is. The greatest thing you could do for our nation today is when you're neighbor to Jesus. When we see a state beginning to decline, what it actually is is a spiritual battle taking place. They need a uh, revival of God's Holy Spirit. There needs to be a revival in evangelism so that those who are dead can be made alive. I say it one more time. The greatest form of patriotism is evangelism. Before the judgment comes, there is great unity though. Here's the misconception that um, disunity is the main cause of Israel and Judah's problems, but that's not actually the case. Um, Before uh, the judgment comes, there's a great amount of unity. They're unified in their evil pursuits. The royal, the rich, the rulers come and weave their plans together. They're unified in their pursuit of evil. They're unified in their evil perversion. They're unified in their method and manner of thinking, and they're unified in their protection of the other people doing the other evil things. That is, until they want to do something evil to that person. There appears to be a great amount of unity here. And so many will say to the bold pastor, to the clear Christian, to the mouthpiece of the message of God today that you're causing disunity by speaking the truth. You're getting really loud about the areas where the Bible is loud and that causes these to be offended and these to be hurt and these to separate and these to run and they will, uh, the world will accuse the righteous of being the splintering effect to their unity. But unity is not the end goal of the believer if it is not unity in the gospel. The gospel's the goal. Jesus is the goal. Everything that is in his word from holiness to sanctification to the principles which he outlines for the faithful follower, um, that is the goal. All eyes on Jesus. So if our unity is found in anything other than scripture's principles, if our unity is found in anything other than the Savior, we're unified for something that we ought not be unified about. And the foundation is sand. The walls are shaky. It's going to come crashing down when God's judgment knocks on the door. Don't be afraid of those who say that you're divisive for speaking truth. Because the word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before judgment, these were unified in their evil pursuit, unified in their evil perversion, and unified in their evil protection of each other. And you can see the, the progression that there's evil in the neighborhood, and then there becomes evil in the friendships, and then evil in the family, and it becomes generational evil at that point, and God's calling us to be the stop to that as believers. Those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat it, and so we begin now at the generational level to be a godly family, and if we can raise godly families, we could grow godly friendships And if we have godly community and fellowship, we can have a godly neighborhood and then a godly city and a godly state and a godly country. It all comes down to if you do what God says do, things go really well for you.
Obey God and leave the consequences to him. Disobey God, leave the consequences to him. So what do we do with this? What do we do with these verses filled with great woe and great sorrow and great heaviness and great evil? The answer is found in the next few verses beginning in verse number seven. And we'll be happy to share about what God is saying through those in the very next installment of this journey through the book of Micah.